but the blood of Jesus that we would put our hope in. That this world would tempt us and intrigue us with all kinds of alternatives. That we at time give our lives to something else. But we come back to this one enthralling truth that we have nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this evening, Father, we ask that as we look at the cross and we ponder the events of Good Friday, that our lives would be open to you, that our hearts would be changed, that we would be forever caught up in all that you are, and that our lives would forever be caught in the shadow of the cross. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight is Good Friday, where we remember the death of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, a homeless, itinerant Galilean was crucified between two thieves by Roman soldiers. He had no money, no property to leave behind, no children to leave them to. Nothing particularly remarkable that we would tweet about or post about. In fact, the prophet Isaiah would tell us that he was so uncomely that he was the kind of person we would hide our face from. He says that he would be despised, and he said that we would hold him to lo in low esteem. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about him. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Over 5,000 years of recorded history, across the globe, every nation, tongue, and tribe, and yet Jesus is the single most remembered, revered, studied, and honored person. He's even been incorporated in Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and many other faiths. When it comes to intriguing death, books have been written about the death of JFK, we study Lincoln's assassination. We know how Napoleon died in exile. Thousands of people file past Lenin's tomb in Red Square every year. And yet, that doesn't even begin to compare to the remembrance of Christ's death today around the world and throughout history. Here we are 2,000 years later in Santa Monica, California, in one of the most affluent zip codes in the world. And we remember the death of a homeless itinerant Galilean, killed between two thieves by Roman soldiers. Jesus' death was horrific, but it wasn't the first or last crucifixion. Jesus was martyred, but he wasn't the first or the last religious martyr. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the hope of nations, but he wasn't the first to make those claims. And yet, here we are tonight, because we believe that Good Friday was different. N.T. Wright wrote a book entitled, The Day the Revolution Began, because he argues that Good Friday is the pivotal event in history. Jesus died on Good Friday, and in his death, he rescued us from sin, he cleansed us from unrighteousness, he delivered us from evil, he secured our eternal destiny, he overcame the evil one. He reconciled humanity to God. He destroyed the wall separating Jews and Gentiles. He gave his life that we may experience the life 
that is truly life. It is finished, was declared on Good Friday, before Easter. History itself was changed because of Good Friday. You cannot overestimate what was done at the cross on Good Friday. It is the pivotal event of history. It is why we call him cursed. It offends our contemporary sensibilities. On the cross, Jesus declared that the sincere efforts of well-meaning people is not enough. At the cross on Good Friday, Jesus declared that neat moralistic religion can never redeem mankind or heal the brokenness of the world or right the wrongs of evil. At the cross, Jesus declares that we can never be good enough, that our merit will never earn us the favor of God, that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do, no matter how long we work at it, we'll always need something else. Jesus dies on Good Friday to save our souls, to rescue us from sin, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to deliver us from evil, to secure our eternal destiny, to overcome the evil one, to reconcile humanity to God, to tear down the wall separating Jews and Gentiles, to give us the life that is truly life. And this evening, I want to look at what this means for three specific groups of people. The first is who I'm going to call the non-Christian, the one who has not given the totality of their life to Jesus. The second group is what I'm going to call the casual Christian, the ones who believe in God, claim the Christian label, and live a relatively virtuous life, but for whom conviction is often short-lived and easily displaced. And the third group I want to address are those who I will call the committed disciples, the ones who don't just believe in God, but strive daily to commit the totality of their lives for the sake of being like Jesus. Yes, there's a hundred of in-betweens, and many of us cycle between the three of the course of our lives. But I want to focus on these three groups from the events of Good Friday and allow them to inform how we think about the in-betweens. The first word is for the non-Christian, the person who hasn't given the totality of their lives to Jesus. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us in this sacred remembrance. If I say something crazy, don't hold it against the good folks here. I'm just someone who believes in the work of Jesus and wants to see his work change the world. You see, in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39, this is what the gospel writer Luke tells us. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. This was addressed to a thief. And maybe when you think of thief, you think about somebody who shoplifted from Walmart or Target. But we need to understand that these thieves were not petty thieves. 
They weren't even white-collar Wall Street um, thieves. But these guys were considered uh, affronts to social order. They were considered reprobate. Uh, they were those whose deeds were so dark. They didn't just deserve execution, but they had to be publicly executed in the most shaming, embarrassing way. And this thief says that his deeds deserved that kind of death. So Jesus tells this thief, this reprobate, this person who committed such bad crimes that they deserved a humiliating public execution, that today you will be with me in paradise this part of the Good Friday story illustrates a vital part of our faith. It is that salvation is offered to anyone, anywhere, and any time. Anyone, anywhere, and any time. The question is begged. This man is on his deathbed. He is literally hours away from dying. Is his conversion valid? Do people who've been diagnosed with terminal illness, who have no hope of living, who have lived lives riddled with sin, whose lives have been an affront to God, who have made it more about their will than God's, do they have any hope if they put their hope in Jesus at the last minute? If you lived a terrible life, chose to live in rebellion against God, and made your will more important than his, can you turn around at the last minute and give your life to Jesus? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. No dying person remains in despair. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've offended, no matter how sinful you've been, no matter how many regrets you have, no matter how many demons haunt you, you are not without hope. Salvation can be yours. But that also means that no living person should despair. If salvation can come to someone who has nothing but dying breath to give God, there's hope for those who still have life in them. This part of the story tells us that no dying or living person is beyond the work of God. This part of the story tells us that it's never too late. The famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody said, did ever the new birth experience happen in so strange a cradle? It's a strange part of Good Friday to see someone so sinful receive such a hopeful promise from Jesus when they literally have nothing to offer. This person is going to die. There's nothing they can give back to God. There's nothing that they can do to make it right for anyone else in their lives. There's nothing that they can do for anybody. And yet, this man who deserved a horrific public execution, whose life was marred by sin, and at this point beyond any human redemption, receives the promise of God. In the morning, this guy was spurned by people, but in the evening, he was celebrating with angels. In the morning, this man was an enemy to Caesar, but in the evening, he was a friend of God. 
In the morning, this man was dying as a criminal. But in the evening, he was living as a citizen of heaven. In the morning, this man was dying a horrific death. But in the evening, he was wearing a crown of life. This is good news, church. Today, you will be with me in paradise. No matter what you've done, no matter what regrets you have, no matter who you've harmed, no matter what demons haunt you, you can turn to Jesus, put your faith in him, receive the new birth, and be filled with the Spirit of God. That's a whole lot of Christianese if you're not a Christian. But the point is this. No one is without hope. There is never a moment that the promises of God cannot be yours. There's never a moment that God cannot take your life and still do something amazing with it. You can turn to Jesus, who died to save our souls, who rescued us from sin, who cleansed us from unrighteousness, who delivered us from evil, who secured our eternal destiny, who overcame the evil one, who tore down the wall between Jew and Gentile, who gave us the life that is truly life. You can turn to him and be made new. And like the thief on the cross, you can become a citizen of heaven, a friend of God, and an heir of Christ's promises. If you're not a Christian this evening, do not leave the same way you came. Do not come here, feel bad about the life you lived, marred by the regret of those you have harmed, the things you've done wrong, and the demons that haunt you, and go back into the world bridled by all of those things. You can leave tonight like the thief on the cross to have claimed the promises of God, to be given the new birth, and to be filled with the Spirit. You can turn from who you were and turn to God. Do not leave tonight. Do not leave tonight the way you came because the promise is yours as much as, much as it was for the thief on the cross. The promise is yours as much as it is for any one of us. You can receive the promises of God. You are never too far from the promises of God, and nothing you have done can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Anyone, anywhere, anytime. But my second word is for those I will call the casual Christian. I didn't know what else to call it because I didn't want to make it seem like I was making fun of you or putting you down because I find myself so often in that category of the person who believes in God, the person who claims the Christian label, the one who's trying to live a virtuous life. But so often, conviction just loses its way and gets easily displaced. In Luke chapter 23, it tells us this, starting in verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? These women see Jesus. He has not died yet. They know what's going to happen, and they're struck with grief. They're crying. It says that they're wailing. They're weeping 
because they know what's about to happen. They know that this God, this person that they have loved, will suffer a horrific death. Wouldn't you be struck with that kind of emotion if your loved one, your friend, your cousin, your son, if they were going to face this horrific death, publicly humiliated, stripped naked before all of humanity, you could not help but be struck with that emotion and that, and that, and that sense of, of pity and sorrow. And yet Jesus says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. And when I think about Good Friday, one of my fears, church, is that we come to Good Friday. We flog ourselves emotionally. We feel bad. We go into the basement of guilt. We confess how sorrowful we are to God. And then two weeks later, we're right back, living the same lives we lived before, maybe feeling a little bit better because we flagellated ourselves, felt bad, and, went and, did, our, and, and did some kind of emotional exercise to cleanse the demons. And yet, we're largely unchanged. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's odd. I was talking to one of my colleagues, and they said to me, you know you went to a good Good Friday service when you leave feeling bad. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you think that the Good Friday service was good when you live, leave feeling worse than when you came. And yet, I think it's a mistake to leave in pity and sorrow. You see, Good Friday for the casual, what I'm calling the casual Christian, isn't a, a call to sorrow and pity. It's also not a call to repentance, but it is a call to penitence. You see, in sorrow and pity, you feel bad about what happened to Jesus, right? I mean, a lot of times you come and you're like, oh, Jesus, Jesus suffered for me. Jesus bore my grief and shame. Jesus was embarrassed for me. Jesus went through what I should have been. Jesus, you feel pity for Jesus. And sometimes you feel sorrow for your own sin. But have you ever noticed in life you can have pity and sorrow and never change? How many times have you found yourself doing something that you felt bad about doing just a month ago? How often do you see yourself doing something that you felt bad that someone else had to undergo? We often experience sorrow and pity, and yet we never change. On the other hand, repentance is, is like going one way, realizing you're going the wrong way, turning around and going a different way. It's changing directions, changing your life. They'll often say it's changing your heart and mind. But you'll notice you can, you can realize you're going in the wrong direction. You can make changes and actually do something different, but yet never really actually feel bad about what you did. You just know it was wrong. Have you ever changed something you were doing because you just knew it wasn't working, but you didn't actually feel bad? You see, on Good Friday, the call for the casual Christian isn't to, isn't to have just pity and sorrow. It's also not just to have repentance, but it is to have penitence. Penitence is where those people place themselves before God, allow godly sorrow to lead them to repentance, binding together heart and mind, body and soul. You take the emotion that's drawn, but you also tie it to tangible physical action. In penitence, 
We respond to the work of God, not just with emotions and guilt, not just with simple change, but with hearts longing for the transformative work of God in our lives. I wonder sometimes what Christians do with Good Friday. Most of you are probably far more godly than me. At times I find myself really tempted to believe that Good Friday is God's ultimate sacrifice so that I can keep doing what I've been doing. If you're around people enough, you sometimes hear this thing that says, God loves you so much the way you are that he died for you. True. But then they often then say, so I don't actually need to change. They take the cross, the life of Jesus, what happens on Good Friday, as the stamp of says, God loves me so much the way I am that I don't need to change. They take it as a, God takes you as you are, so you don't need to change. They take it as the ultimate call to you do you. They take it as a stamp of like, hey, God loves me so much the way I am that he suffered so I can keep on doing what I've been doing. And maybe you aren't so blatant to view the cross so lowly. But I wonder, are you tempted to make God the product of your projections, fantasies, wishes, and needs? Are you tempted to reduce Jesus to your security blanket or a good luck charm? Have you made God the one who's there to hold your hand, solve your problems, rescue you from trials and tribulations? Have you made God the one who's supposed to be there to give you the happy ending? Do you think of God as the one who confers upon you a privileged status that is safe and secure? Is God the one who's promised you health, wealth, fulfillment, and success? Do you want me to pull rabbits out of hats? Is God the one who your conscience can be at ease with itself? It's strange to me that amongst some Christians, they will come to Good Friday, remember the immense sacrifice of Jesus, and then say, I can totally be at peace with myself. They look at what happens on Good Friday, and they say, God sacrificed so much for me, I can just totally be at ease the way I am. Have you ever made God the bandage, but never the wound? Have you ever made God the one who answers you every time you pray, who comes when you call? The God who's never hidden, never absent, never entombed? Have you ever been tempted to look at God as a butler? A glorified Santa Claus? The answer to our problems? The answer to depression, anxiety, poverty? The one who's going to make up for our lack of perfection? but never really expect us to change. When I think of Good Friday, I realize that Jesus goes from hosannas to heartbreak. On Sunday, the crowd yelled, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the king. But on Friday, they yell, crucify him, crucify him. On Sunday, Jesus is surrounded by adoring crowds. But on Friday, he's abandoned, forsaken, and alone. 
On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. But on Friday, he's carried limp, lifeless and powerless from the cross to a tomb. On Good Friday, God is forsaken, abandoned, betrayed, mocked, shamed, exploited, beaten, tortured, vulnerable, naked, exposed, disappointed, killed, and mourned. He is weak, he is powerless, and he is misrepresented. Are we tempted to reduce that to simple pity? Are we tempted to allow that to be an emotional salve that makes us feel bad today, but allows us to go back to the life that we wanted to live before? Are we tempted to allow Christianity to be a label we wear, but our lives to be otherwise unchanged? For the casual Christian, for the, for the non-Christian, the call of Good Friday is to turn and to put your trust in God. But for the casual Christian, the call of Good Friday is to enter into penitence. Would you allow your heart not just to be stirred, but would you enter into repentance? Would you actually change to wed emotion with physicality, to, ma- to wed heart with soul and mind? Would you actually give to God your very life rather than expecting him to be the one to cover over your life? Would you give your life so that tomorrow, your life tomorrow will be defined more by the cross tomorrow than it was today? Will your life be defined by a God who was abandoned, mocked, forsaken, misunderstood, abused, taken advantage of, made vulnerable to the utmost? Or will you just make Good Friday a covering so you could pursue success, power, authority, a name for yourself, wealth for your own comfort and security? Will you allow the cross to just simply be something that hangs on your neck so that you can say you've put your trust in God all the while living on your own terms? The call to the casual Christian on Good Friday is to enter into penitence, that we would not just be struck by the gravity of Christ's sacrifice, but that we would not just change, but that we would allow godly sorrow to lead us into lives that are constantly changing into ever-increasing glory and to glory. So the first word was for the non-Christian, you can turn to God and be made new. The second word was for the casual Christian, that you can enter into a time of penitence and not just pity and sorrow. But the third word is for what I'm calling the committed disciple, the one who has given the totality of their lives so that every aspect of their life reflects the image of Jesus. John chapter 19 says this, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his house. Turn to God 
walk in penitence, and persevere. When I think about the committed disciple, the one who's given the totality of their lives daily so that every aspect of their lives reflects the image and likeness of Jesus, I can't help but think of the word persevere. You see, on the cross, as Jesus looks at his mother and his best friend John, he says, Mother, behold your son. And he says, John, behold your mother. It's, it's a very little thing. You're like, what does this have to do? You see, Jesus is going to be gone. They have to find a way to get through. And rather than filling their ears with platitudes of how your hope is in heaven, don't worry about the physical life, instead of saying, don't feel bad, God needs them more than you do, instead of filling them with platitudes about the hope they have in heaven, God, Jesus gives them something practical to do, to live in the here and now. You see, sometimes it's easy if you're a disciple, giving your whole life to God, to sometimes not grow weary. And when I look at the cross and I look at what happens on Good Friday, I hear this calling of Jesus to persevere. When you're tired of wiping snot off your kids and managing your home, when you're tired of being nice to the grouchy neighbors, when you're tired of dealing with the coworker who can't help but swear expletives and use the Lord's name in vain, when you can't help but be offended by watching people of color abused by others, white or other people of color, when you can't help but feel broken down by the brokenness of the world, will you persevere? Will you persevere? Will you look at a world that has broken and gone awry? where it seems like God is nowhere to be found? And will you live faithfully? No one puts it more starkly or more honestly and truthfully than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing from prison, said, We have to learn to live in the world as if God were not here. This is just what we recognize before God. God himself compels us to recognize it. God would have us know that we must live as men and women who manage our lives without him, but for him. The God who is with us is the God who forsakes us. Before God and with God, we live without God. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross and then down from the cross and into the grave. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way and the only way in which he is with us and helps us. You see what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says? God calls each of us to live in the world without him, but for him. It's this strange irony of what we're called to and what Good Friday calls us to. Jesus was abandoned, forsaken, vulnerable, misunderstood, misrepresented, mocked. And in that moment, he lives for God. And as disciples of Jesus, we have the opportunity to live in the world as if God were not with us, but for him. Now, some of you will be smart. And you know that God gives us the Holy Spirit as his forever presence. 
And yet, almost every anointed, saintly follower of Jesus would recognize where there was times when they felt nothing but forsakenness. But in those moments when they felt like they were living without God, they lived for him. And amazing things have happened. Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy survived Raven's Book concentration camp. Betsy ends up dying as they get moved. They felt that they were forsaken. But in that forsaken place, they lived for God. And lives were changed. Fanny Crosby is this famous blind woman who most of you don't know, but you probably owe your spiritual life to because she wrote songs like Blessed Assurance. At times, she had nothing, and she was left, and people said, you had nothing to offer the world. And she chose to live in the midst of her suffering. Thought God wasn't there, but she said, I will keep living for God because I feel like there is something still there. We, live, we have the opportunity to live in a world that seems all but forsaken. We get the opportunity to live in the world where we are misunderstood, mocked, vulnerable. And we get to live for God, though without him here. And when I think of Good Friday, I can't help but think of the call to persevere. You're tired. You feel like you've been showing up and God's not there. You feel like you're the only one who's trying. You're misunderstood. You're mocked. You're persecuted. You're abused. Will you persevere? Do you realize there's something you can still do? When you feel like you have nothing, when you feel like you're at the end of the rope, At the moment of your greatest sorrow, can you take someone in? John takes in Mary. Mary takes in John. I have to tell you a story about Bob Marshall. I hope he's watching. I don't know if he is. He might be asleep. Bob Marshall, as many of you know, is, is an elder in this church. And, and, and recently he, he had a surgery, and then uh, his heart was acting up, and then his heart wasn't beating right. Then he had a small stroke, and then they found out he had cancer. It's been a nightmare for him. And, and, and this last week, I reached out to the, to the doctor taking care of him because it's a, a residence who I've, I've, I've supervised, and, and I happen to know he's Christian. So I said, hey, it would be really meaningful to Bob Marshall if you, if you prayed with him. So, so Dr. Ricketts prays with Bob Marshall. But one of the things Ricketts tells me is, He's never been so encouraged by somebody's faith. You have somebody who in a week span had surgery, had kidney problems, had heart problems, had a small stroke, found out he has cancer, and yet he's blessing the blessed doctor. Do you understand? It would be so easy for Bob Marshall to say, I put in my time. It's so easy for Bob Marshall to say, I'm tired. I mean, don't you have a right to be tired? It's so easy to say, I'm ready to go. But even in that moment, before, by the way, before I even talked to Dr. Ricketts to pray with Bob, Bob had already talked to him about his faith. 
That's how Ricketts found out he was Christian, was because Bob was talking about his faith. Do you realize God made love a hundred nurses at UCLA Santa Monica and the and the and the um, and the person Bob had to share a room with so much so that God allows Bob Marshall to be there for the longest ten days of his life, and He allows Linda to be there for the longest ten days of her life, just so the fact that when everything seems forsaken and vulnerable and gone awry, they could persevere and they could testify to a God who isn't there, but is. They have the opportunity to say in the midst of their suffering that they had a God who suffered for them, who reminded them that their suffering is not for naught. And they can persevere. We never know about the Bulgarian women who couldn't speak Dutch, but who ended up in the same prison, the same concentration camp at Corrie Ten Boom. And how Corrie Ten Boom in, in Dutch and German would read scripture, and then the Italian women would, would translate it into French, and then the French would translate it into Bulgarian. And th- all these women just trying to translate what Lo- Corrie Ten Boom was reading in the middle of Raven's Book concentration camp. And yet the gospel gets proclaimed in ten different languages. We never know who God loves so much that he would trouble our lives, that he would allow us to be forsaken and abused for the sake of bringing the gospel to them. And so you tonight, church, the committed disciples, we can renew our faith, renew our hope, and we can commit to being those who will persevere. And so when I think about Good Friday... I think there's a word for the non-Christian. Anyone, anywhere, anytime, you can turn to God. The promises can be yours. I think of the casual Christian. You can move beyond pity into penitence. And I think about the committed disciple. You can today renew the call to persevere. And you look can look to Jesus who was abandoned and forsaken and vulnerable and misunderstood and mocked. And you can understand the call to live for God even when you feel like he's not there. Let's pray. Father, this evening, we don't want to leave feeling awful so that we can just go back to our lives. And we don't want to check off a box that we thought about Jesus today. God, there are some people here who may not know who you are. May they hear your call. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May this be the moment they begin to trust in you, to put their hope in you, 
step into the new life, the new birth and life in the spirit. God, for those of us who have been very casual about our faith, where we've reduced you to a glorified butler or Santa Claus, help godly sorrow for what happens on the cross to lead us into penitent lives that we might live for you anew. But God, for the committed disciples among us, give us a spirit to persevere. Help us to consider with joy our own forsakenness, our own abandonment, our own vulnerability, the times we are mocked and misunderstood, the times we are falsely accused. And may we see Jesus. And may we like him and like those at the cross yet live for you, though seemingly without you. Lord, tonight we remember that Jesus died to save us from sin, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to deliver us from evil, to overcome the evil one, to secure our eternal destiny, to reconcile us to you and to each other. We recognize that Jesus died to set us free. Help his sacrifice never, never, ever, Father, to be lost on us. We pray this in the name of our wonderful and blessed Savior, Jesus.